0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy filled marriage and family.
0: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.
2: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Nobody does business
3: after the market closes, neither after the games end does anyone come up to be crowned. Neither then is godliness to be postponed till after life.
1: Every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. This week's sermon was preached by the church father Basil, probably around 368 AD in Caesarea.
2: Uh, Joel, this sermon is convicting to listen to. It was it was convicting for me to edit. In a lot of ways, I felt like Basil's advice runs contrary to pretty much what you would normally hear from the financial guru types. Uh, y- usually you hear, you know, you need to save this much, you need to do this much, you need to do this, re- always be reinvesting. It's kind of like, I feel like most money advice is all about how you can just take care of yourself better. Basil's sermon here is really doesn't do that and yet i feel like his sermon to me it felt at least more biblical in a lot of ways i feel like this is kind of like when i read the bible this is actually what i feel like the bible is probably closer to saying than what most of the financial guru types tell me but this sermon at, at the very least it maybe you won't i don't know that we'll all go and do everything he says in this sermon but i think it's a good thing to have in our mind and at least be hearing that counter-opinion
1: Yeah, Troy, Basil was born in 329 AD. And whenever we have one of these really old episodes, we've had one on Chrysostom, we've had one on Origen, and we'll soon have one on St. Augustine. The first thing we always do is try to really remind you guys that this was a very, very long time ago. They still lived during the Roman Empire, the same Roman Empire that Jesus walked in and was a part of and at the time they had no idea that it would ever go away they still lived in a lot of the cities that are in the bible though the bible was very real to them they were very close to the events of the bible because they lived in those cities and were related to those people
2: i think a good way to compare it actually for basil is i you know i'm living and we're recording this in 2020 america which is founded about you know united states of america was founded about 250 or so years ago in the same way, Basil, when he was about 20 years old, uh, the last of the apostles, John, would have died about 250 years ago, give or take a little bit of numbers here and there, but it's not too bad. So you are he's about as removed from the apostles as we are from George Washington, and that actually really doesn't feel like that long of a ways away, and we're still in the same country as George Washington, and that's the same feeling Basil could have. Yeah, the first thing
1: to mention about Basil is that he came from an important family and an important city. His sister named Macarena, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce her name. I'm actually probably getting that wrong, but I'm going to go with Macarena. His sister Macarena uh, would eventually become a nun, and we'll get to her later. His brother was St. Gregory of Nissa. and he wrote a lot of really important church theology and was a bishop. His uncle was also a bishop, and so he comes from a family of Christian leaders and they they helped him get a a good education
2: growing up his family was also famous in the area they were in uh because they had this been this supportive group that had really helped a lot of christians out during the persecution in that region um so they, they kind of had that street credibility. You could trust these guys. These guys were solid for the faith during that hard time. They had helped us out. And so they, that's a good family to come from. And and again, all the people were pretty much come, becoming leaders. They had this reputation that people looked to and, and Basil would kind of grow in that too. And it's interesting too, because his family would fight back against persecution and this big problem for the church earlier and then when basil grows up he's going to have to challenge and fight a new problem for the church which is the heresies that come out during this era
1: and we mentioned the city too where he lived in caesarea which today doesn't carry a whole lot of weight but back then it was the capital of cappadocia which was right in between constantinople and antioch so it's it's a very central very important city so basil comes from a distinguished family. All of his brothers and sisters were big figures in faith, and he grew up in a very important city. So it seems like, you know, if you're looking at his life, It would seem like he's destined to do great
2: things from the start. But as is often the case in this show, Basil did not know that. He studied school in Caesarea, uh, Constantinople, and he would eventually go on to Athens, which if you know history, that's really where the the educated top dogs are. Uh, He'd become friends with St. Gregory of Nazianzus. And I know we're saying a lot of names that are kinda maybe not familiar to us. These are important people uh, historically and in their time especially. And this guy was a very influential church figure in this age. And we we talk about these people becoming friends. These two were really good friends, uh, but we have to remember that they at the time when they became friends, they didn't know they would be considered you know future saints of the church and all that. They didn't know they were church fathers getting together, hanging out. At the time, they were students and they were friends and they enjoyed conversations and hanging out and spending time together. They they didn't know that this friendship and this in their relationships would change the world. This was to them just this is my good buddy. And eventually, these two people became very important. Now, Basil was planning from the seams of it to be a lawyer and an orator and a teacher, uh, not a church father. His father, Basil the Elder, uh, gave Basil the best education possible, and he, he was already himself a great lawyer, and he was this orator that everyone could count on. He wanted Basil to be even better than himself.
1: His sister, Macarena, we mentioned her earlier. She was the oldest sibling of the family, and she had taken a very monastic lifestyle, rejecting wealth and choosing to live humbly and serve others. She explained that this was a better way to live for a better relationship with God, and the real key to happiness. She was, however, a very sickly person. She had some type of disease, and to this day, it's still unknown kind of what she suffered with, but she became very ill, and she fought with this until she eventually died of it, and the whole family took it pretty hard. Her brother,
2: Gregory, actually wrote a book on her life as a guide to how to live like a monk. During this time, Basil will buy a small piece of land. He'll kind of start his own monastery life they lived quietly they read scripture and they focused on living just this humble quiet life away from the world and the in de- the the goods of the world uh, he was taught the scripture and he would begin teaching it to others but not in an official capacity i looked at it more as kind of a almost a small family bible study with with a few friends kind of thing after a time he decided he really wanted to learn more about the scriptures and he wanted to be able to teach better so he kind of does this little trip through egypt israel syria to kind of learn about the faith and Many of the people he runs into are living this monastic lifestyle. They showed him, here's how we do it. Here's how you can grow closer to God. And when he returned, he pretty much gave all his goods, all his wealth, his property away to the needy. And he was just focused on living this peaceful life away from uh, just worldly temptations and all that stuff. But that wouldn't end up being the end of his story. And we'll hear how uh, his life kind of takes a total change here in a, just a second.
1: Hey, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the folks over at Babylon Exiles. They've been giving us a lot of support online and sending us memes that we love oh so much. Thank you guys for everything you do. Basil would end up writing a list of rules to be used by monks, and the monasteries started spreading and it was he kind of the, the beginning movement of this whole monk lifestyle. But there was something else spreading as well. Most people remember that Constantine made the official religion of Rome Christianity. But the next emperor pushed Arianism instead. Arianism believes that Jesus was a creature God created and not the same as God himself. And this would become a very popular uh, opinion during the era that Basil lived in. When he was visiting different parts of the empire he saw it everywhere he went basil
2: would fight it everywhere he went and he helped correct the church from giving up the divinity of christ he would end up being a bishop he'd end up writing a lot of things he kind of had to leave the monasteries that he would have rather been at to do things to help the people of god especially fighting this false belief that jesus christ was a creature created by god not god himself in this sermon to the rich He calls out the lifestyles of those who are just pursuing material things. This problem, which is something I think we all struggle with, we're still seeing that 1700 years later, I think humans will always struggle with the desire for more. This problem that he sees during his time is being preached against by a man who had a good life, had all that he needed, had tons of wealth, and he gave it all away and chose a simpler existence, one more focused on God. And now that person is coming to you and telling you how you need to view your wealth and he's giving a message to the rich and if you're living in the west you're probably one of the people that need to hear it
3: and behold one came and said to him good master What good thing must I do that I might have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which? Jesus said, You will not murder, you will not steal, you will not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. The Young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth up, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me but when the young man heard that saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions first we heard about this young man the day before yesterday and if you were listening attentively you should be able now to remember the things we were discussing then first that this is not the same person as the lawyer we read of in Luke 10:25 For that man was a tempter, asking insincerely. But this one asks soundly, though he fails to accept the answer with a ready obedience. For he would not have gone away sorrowful after receiving such an answer from the Lord if he had put forth his questions cynically in the first place. It seemed to us that this man's behavior was confused, partly condemnable, as the passage shows, and partly wretched and altogether hopeless. For to know the one who is truly the teacher, and to disregard the Pharisees' posturings and all the lawyers' opinions and the mob of scribes, and to ascribe this name to him who is the only true and good teacher, there is much here that is praiseworthy and moreover it is a worthy endeavor to show concern over how one is to inherit eternal life. But what in fact proves that his whole intent was not to seek what is truly good, but only to snoop about for what would please the crowd, is this, when he had learned from the true teacher the saving truth, he didn't write them in his heart. Nor did he put the teachings into practice, but he went off depressed and clouded by darkness. Again, this demonstrates moral inconsistency and self contradiction. You called him teacher, and you won't do his lessons? You acknowledge him to be good, and what he gives to you, you throw away? But he who is good supplies good things. This is obvious. Although what you ask about is eternal life, you give proof of being utterly addicted to the enjoyment of this present life. What, after all, is this hard, heavy, burdensome word which the teacher has put forward? Sell what you have and give to the poor. If he has laid upon you agricultural toils or dangerous merchant ventures or so many other troubles which are incidental to the life of the wealthy, then you'd have had cause for sorrow. But when he calls you to a task so easy, without toil or sweat, to show yourself an inheritor of eternal life, and yet you are not glad— for the ease of salvation. Instead, you go away in pain in your heart and mourning, and you make useless for yourself all that you had labored at beforehand. For if, as you say, you've not murdered, not committed adultery, not stolen, not witnessed against someone a false witness, You have now made such exertions unprofitable to you when you fail to add on the remainder by which alone you might be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And if a physician has declared to you that he could fully mend you of some physical disfigurement you had by nature or disease, wouldn't you have listened to him joyfully? But when the great physician of souls desires to make you whole of your deficiencies and things that matter most, and you don't accept the favor, but mourn and put on a gloomy face. Now you are obviously very far from having observed one commandment at the very least, and so you falsely swore that you had kept it, namely, that you've loved your neighbor as yourself. For you see, the Lord's commandment proves you to be utterly lacking in real love. For if what you've claimed were true, that you had kept from your youth the commandment of love, and have given to each person as much as to yourself, how has it come to you that you have this abundance of money? For it takes wealth to care for the needy, a little paid out for the necessity of each person you take on, and all at once, everything gets parceled out and is spent. Here, the man who loves his neighbor as himself will have acquired no more than what his neighbor has, whereas you, visibly, have acquired a lot." Where has this come from? Or is it not clear that it comes from making your private enjoyment more important than helping other people? Therefore, however much you exceed in wealth, so much so do you fall short in love. Otherwise, you'd already be out of money. If you had truly loved your neighbor, but now your money sticks to you closer than the limbs of your body, And he who would separate you from it grieves you more than someone who would cut off your vital parts. For if you had clothed the naked, if you had given your bread to the hungry, if you had opened your doors to every stranger, if you'd become a father to orphans, if you'd had suffered together with all the powerless, what possessions would now be causing you sorrow? Why should you now be upset to put aside what's left when you'd long since taken care to distribute these things to the needy? Now, on a market day, no one is sorry to barter his goods and get in return such things as he needs, but to the extent that he purchases things of greater value with what is cheaper, he rejoices having gotten a better deal than his trading partner. But you, by contrast, mourn in giving gold and silver and goods, that is, offering stones and dust in order to obtain the blessed life. Second, how do you make use of money? By dressing in expensive clothing Won't two yards of tunic suffice you and the covering of one's coat satisfy all your need of clothes? But is it for food's sake that you have such a demand for wealth? One bread loaf is enough to fill a belly. Why are you sad, then? What have you been deprived of? The status that comes with wealth? But if you would stop seeking earthly status, then you then find the true, resplendent kind that would conduct you into the kingdom of heaven. But what you love is simply to possess wealth, even if you derive no help from it. Now, everyone knows that an obsession for useless things is mindless, Just so what I am going to say should seem to you no great paradox, and it is utterly absolutely true, when wealth is given in the way the Lord advises, it naturally stays with you, but when held back, it is given to another. If you hoard it, you won't keep it. But if you scatter, you won't lose, for, says the scripture, He has dispersed, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. But it isn't for the sake of clothing or food that riches are a matter of such concern to so many people. It is a certain wily trickery of the devil, countless pretexts of needed expenses are proposed to the rich, so that they strive for superfluous, useless things as though they were necessary. And this is so that nothing measures up to their conception of what they should spend. For they divide up their wealth with a view to present and future uses, and they assign the one portion to themselves and the other to their children. Next, they subdivide their expense account for various spending purposes. hear now, what sort of arrangements they make. Let some of our assets be accounted as liquid, others as fixed. And then let liquid assets exceed the limits of what is necessary. Let's keep this much on hand for household goods and let that much take care of showy visits to town. Let this be to whoever goes on exotic voyages And let that furnish the one who stays at home with an opulent lifestyle which will be envied by all. It amazes me how they can pile on notions of superfluities. There are countless chariots, some for transporting goods, others for carrying themselves, covered with bronze and silver. A multitude of horses and such as have pedigrees of well-bred fathers as among people. And some of these carry the men about town, others are for hunting, others have been trained for the road. Reins, belts, collars, all of silver, all inlaid with gold, saddles of genuine purple. They dress up the horses like brides, a plethora of donkeys distinguished according to color, with men to hold the reins, some running before and some following after. An unlimited number of other servants striving to fulfill every outlandish desire. They have stewards, treasurers, gardeners, workers skilled in every art ever invented, whether for necessary purposes or for enjoyment and luxury. Butchers, bakers, wine-pourers, huntsmen... Sculptors, painters, artisans of every pleasure, herds of camels, some bearing burdens, others put to graze, herds of horses and of cattle, flocks of sheep, swine, and they continually invest the wealth with additional revenue. They take baths in town and baths in the country, They will have houses gleaming round with every variety of marble and one-place Phrygian stone, elsewhere tiles from Laconia or Thessaly. And of these houses, some are heated in winter, others are cooled in summer. A floor decorated with mosaic gems, gold laid out on the roof and however much of the walls eludes the marble tiling is adorned with choice works of pictorial art. Third, since the wealth still overflows, it gets buried underground and stashed away in secret places, for they say what's to come is uncertain, and we may face unexpected needs. However, It is equally uncertain whether you will have any use for your buried gold. It is not uncertain, however, what will be the penalty of cowardly humans. For when you failed, with your thousand notions wholly to spend your wealth, you then concealed it in the earth. A strange madness occurs when gold originally lies hidden with other metals. One harvests it from the earth, but after it has seen the light of day, it disappears again beneath the ground. From this, I perceive, it happens to you that in burying your money, you also bury your heart. For where your treasure is, it is said, there will your heart be also. That is why the commandments cause sorrow, because they have nothing to do with useless spending sprees, which makes life unbearable for you. And it seems to me that the sickness of this young man, and of those who resemble him, is much like that of a traveler who was longing to travel to some city and was almost there when he stops at an inn just outside the walls. And upon some trifling impulse, he stays there and makes the journey worthless and deprives himself of a view of the wonders of the city. And of such a nature are those who engage to do the other commandments and then turn around and stop for the sake of gathering wealth. I've seen many who will fast, pray, groan and display every kind of pious exertion so long as it costs them nothing. But who will not so much as toss a red scent to those who are suffering? What good do they get from their remaining virtue? For the kingdom of heaven does not admit them. For, as it says, it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But while this statement is so plain, and its speaker so unerring, scarcely anyone is persuaded by it. So how are we supposed to live without possessions, they say? What kind of life will that be, selling everything, being dispossessed of everything? Don't ask me for the rationale of the Master's commandments. He who lays down the law knows how to bring even what is incapable into accordance with the law. But as for you, your heart is tested, as if it were on a balance, to see if it will incline towards true life or towards immediate gratification. For it is right for those who are prudent in their reasoning to regard the use of money as a matter of stewardship, not of selfish enjoyment. And those who lay it aside ought to rejoice as though separated from things alien, not be embittered as though derived of what is nearest and dearest. So why become depressed Why are you so sick at heart when you hear the words, Sell your possessions? For if, on the one hand, these possessions could follow you into the afterlife, they should not therefore be highly valued. When they are next to the prizes that await there, they should be thrown into the darkness. And on the other hand, if they must stay here, why don't we sell them and get back from them what can be gained? When you give up gold and acquire a horse, you are not in poor spirits. But when it comes to giving up things corruptible and receiving in return the kingdom of heaven, you weep and deny the asker and shake your head at the gift, having your mind set upon a thousand and one ways of spending money. Fourth, what answer will you make to the judge, you who decorate walls but don't clothe a man? You who spruce up horses and overlook an unfashionable brother. What will you tell him, you who leave food to rot but will not feed the starving? And you who bury your money and hate the oppressed? What can you say to the judge? For it's not a part-time occupation, these concerns, but night and day they are caught up in their cares. And it is harder if a man has a wife who has the same affliction, for lovers of gold are happy to be bound in handcuffs, so long as it's gold that binds them. When, therefore, will he find time to care for his soul, he that is a servant to his wife's lusts? For like storms and tempests to somewhat rotten boats, so the evil dispositions of wives cause the weak souls of their husbands to go under. Accordingly, when a man and his wife drag their wealth about this way and that to such ends, Winning each other over and discovering new vanities. No wonder the wealth hasn't the opportunity to spill aside to other people. When you hear it said, sell your possessions and give to the poor so that you might have provisions for heavenly enjoyment, you go away grieving. But if you should hear, give money for pampering your wife. Give to stonemasons, carpenters, mosaic pebble layers, portrait painters. You rejoice, as though you had acquired some high-rated salary. Do you see these walls here, broken down by time, whose remnants like watchtowers peer out across the length of the city? How many poor people were there in town when these were being built, who, because of the attention given to such things, were ignored by the wealthy of that day? Where, then, is now the wonderful monument of their labors, and where is the man who devoted himself to such great works? Isn't the one now buried And dissolved, like sandcastles that children love to build, while the other lies in hell, regretting his care for petty things. Let your heart be big, but as for walls, both small and large, fulfill the same function. When I enter the house of a man who is tasteless and a social climber and see it shimmering with every kind of flowery, crash trinket, I apprehend that this man has acquired nothing more valuable in his life than visible things. Yet while he gives what is soulless a facelift, he possesses an ugly soul. Tell me. What better service do silver beds and silver tables, ivory sofas and ivory chairs provide, when because of these things wealth fails to pass over to the poor, and thousands huddle about the door, all of them letting loose a miserable howl. You, however, refuse to give, declaring that it's impossible to satisfy those who ask. With your tongue, you excuse yourself. But by your own hand, you're convicted. For even in silence, your hand proclaims your falsehood, sparkling round from the rings on your fingers. How many people could one of your fingers release from debt? How many broken-down homes could be rebuilt? One box of your clothing would be able to dress the whole shivering populace. But you, unfeeling, dismissing the needy, not fearing the just repayment of the judge, you have not shown mercy and you will not receive mercy. You've not opened your home and you will be evicted from the kingdom you haven't given up your bread so neither will you receive eternal life fifth but i'm poor you say and i'll vouch for you for he is poor who lacks much and much are you lacking because of unfillable desire to 10 talents you seek to add another 10 and when there are 20, you seek to add so many more. You are always after the addition. Far from you is putting the urge to rest. Instead, more just wets the appetite. For just as with alcoholics, a fresh bottle of wine becomes an excuse for drinking, so also those who are recently grown rich and have acquired great possessions, desire more of the same. They nurse the sickness with perpetual addition, and in their love they are brought down into misery. For having so much here and now fails to bring them happiness, since what they don't have they grieve over, thinking that they lack it so that their soul is forever being worn away by the cares born of a struggle for superiority and excess. They ought to be happy and content, being well off and so much, but they bear it ill and are pained that they still fall short of one or two of the super-rich. When they catch up with this tycoon immediately, they yearn to be made equal to somebody richer, And if they outdo him, the desire is transferred to another. Just as those who climb a ladder lift their foot always one step above and do not stop till they've reached the top, in the same way these people do not cease from their drive for power. Until once they have reached very high, they fall from their height and are dashed to the ground. So much as the eye sees, so much does the covetous man desire. The eye is not filled with seeing, Ecclesiastes, and the money lover is not satisfied with getting. Hell does not say enough, Proverbs. Neither does the covetous man ever say enough. When will you make use of your present things, When will you enjoy them, you who are forever involved in a struggle to acquire? Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field so that they may take from their neighbor, Isaiah. But what do you do? Don't you seek a thousand quarrels in order to take what belongs to your neighbor? My neighbor's house, they say, blocks the sunlight. They make too much noise. They hold strange views. Or maybe on the grounds of some other chance accusation, you harass them and kick them out and drag them to court. You hound them, never ceasing till you have succeeded in turning them into criminals. What was it that killed Naboth, the Jezreelite? Was it not Ahab's desire for his vineyard? He's a wicked neighbor in the country, and a wicked neighbor in town, the covetous man. The sea knows its bounds, and night doesn't overstep its ancient limits. But the covetous man has no respect for time, acknowledges no boundaries, never yields in order and succession. He mimics the force of fire— He catches hold of everything, and he feeds on everything. And the profit of wickedness provides them with additional power. For when those already hurt are constrained to make good their losses, they bring harm and injury on others. Nothing withstands the force of wealth. All things succumb to its tyranny. All things cringe before its power, since each wronged person has a greater incentive not to be afflicted by some additional wrong than to seek justice for prior damages. It drives the yoke of oxen. It plows, sows, reaps the things that don't belong to it. If you dissent, watch out for thrashings. If you complain and write of injustices, you're apt to be seized and to end up behind bars. Hired stooges stand waiting, ready to bring your life into danger. And you account it a favor when, as they add yet more into these jails, you're left out of the operation. Sixth. I would like you to take a short vacation from works of iniquity and give your calculations a rest so that you might seriously consider the kind of end towards which these preoccupations are heading. You have such and such an amount of arable land and of wooded land so much more. Hills, plains, valleys, rivers, streams... What then comes next? Don't six feet of earth await you? Won't the weight of a few stones suffice to keep your weary flesh? What is it that you toil over? To what end do you work iniquity? Why do your hands glean a thing that yields no fruit? Yes, and if only it were merely fruitless and not also fuel for eternal fire. Will you never sober up from this intoxication? Never heal your reasonings? Never come to yourself? Won't you set before your eyes the judgment seat of Christ? What will you have to say for yourself? when there will stand about you in a circle those you have wronged, all of them crying against you before the righteous judge. What will you do? What lawyers will you bribe? What witnesses will you produce? How will you corrupt that holy undeceivable judge? You'll find no slick talker there. No verbal spin to steal the strength of the judge of truth. No lackeys follow you, nor money, nor dignity of place. Deserted by friends, deserted of helpers, without an advocate, without defense, you will be left utterly ashamed, abashed, dejected, abandoned, speechless. For all around, in whatever direction you turn your gaze, you clearly see the images of your misdeeds. Here are the tears of orphans, there a widow's groanings. Elsewhere, the poor you stepped on, servants you tore to shreds, neighbors you enraged. All will stand against you. The wicked choir of your evil deeds will tangle you in snares. For just as the shadow trails the body, so do sins trail souls, giving a precise outline of their actions. There is no argument there, but the mouth and every shameless thing are stopped Each man's own actions are called to witness against him, not by sounding a voice, but according to the very appearances of whatever was done. How should I set before your eyes these horrors? If you hear, if you are stirred, be mindful of that day in which the wrath of God shall be revealed from heaven. Bear in mind Christ's glorious coming when the dead will arise, they that have done good to the resurrection of life and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation, then there will be eternal shame to sinners, a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Let these things cause you to mourn, and do not mourn because of the commandment. What should I say? You don't desire the kingdom? You don't fear hell? Where will a healing be found for your soul? If horrors don't terrify, if glories don't attract, we are talking to a heart of stone. Seventh, man, look straight at wealth. Behold its nature. Why should you get excited about gold? Gold's a stone. Silver's a stone. A pearl's a stone. Each one of these stones is a stone. Chrysalis, the beryl, agate. Hyacinth, amethyst, the jasper. This is wealth's Bouquet, and each of these flowers you stash some away, hiding them, covering the stone's brilliance and darkness. Others you wear, looking beautiful with your glimmering gems. Tell me, what good does it do you to bind up your hand with stones? What trendy dresser ever managed to extend his life a single day? For whom did death ever show consideration in deference to wealth? Or what disease is kept off by money? How long, gold? You reel of souls, you fishhook of death and bait of sin. How long, wealth? You pretext of war, for whose sake arms are forged and swords are sharpened. For love of it, relatives ignore nature. Brothers eye each other murderously. It is for love of wealth. The wilderness breeds bandits. The seas, pirates. The cities, sycophants. People, what's the matter with you? Who has done this to you to turn your things into a conspiracy against you? I need them for my lifestyle. Well, and hasn't your money furnished provisions for wrongdoing? It's a form of insurance. Isn't it rather a means of self-destruction? But money's a necessity on account of the children. A fine excuse for greed. You parade your kids but gratify your own desires. I do not accuse the innocent man. He has his master and his responsibilities. But wasn't this gospel passage written also for married folk? If you want to be perfect, sell your belongings and give to the poor. When you asked the Lord for a large family, when you prayed that you might be a father of children, did you then add the following Give me children so that I may ignore your commandments. Give me children, so that I might not attain to the kingdom of heaven. And who will guarantee you of your child's intentions that what you give will be rightly used? For wealth turns out to be, for many people, a minister of impurity. Or don't you hear Ecclesiastes, who says, I have seen a sore malaise, riches kept in store for one who comes after a man to his hurt. And again, I left it for the man who should come after me, and who knows if he will be a wise man or a fool. See to this then. Unless having accumulated your wealth through countless pains, you prepare it for others as materials for sins, and then find yourself doubly punished, both for what you did to yourself and for the means you gave to others. Doesn't your own soul belong to you more intimately than any child? Isn't it joined to you by a more intimate closeness than anything else? Give to it the first privileges of inheritance. Provide it with a richer living. And afterwards, distribute to your children what they need to get by in life. Often it happens that children, who have received nothing from their parents, have gone on to establish estates for themselves. But as for your soul, if you don't take care of it, who will pity it? Faith. So much for fathers, what has been said has been said. Now what plausible causes of stinginess will the childless fling at us? I don't sell my possessions, neither give to the poor on account of life's necessities. Therefore the Lord is not your teacher, neither does the gospel direct your life. But you are yourself your own lawgiver. See into what a danger you fall when reasoning like this. For if the Lord has ordered these things as necessary to you, and you, for your part, write them off as impossible, you say nothing less than that you yourself are more intelligent than the lawgiver. But you say... After I've enjoyed these things all my days, when my life is over, I will cause the poor to inherit the things I formerly possessed. And in a written testament, I will declare them to be the owners. When you no longer exist among human beings, then you become a lover of humanity. (laughs) When I see you dead, then I will be able to say that you love your brother a great many thanks to you for this noble gesture that when you are lying in the tomb and decomposing into earth, then you grow substantially with spending and become big hearted. Tell me, which years will you be looking to receive wages for? Those during your life or those when you're dead? But when you were alive, you passed your time wallowing in life's luxuries, floating along with your delicacies and wouldn't bear to cast a glance at the poor. When you die, then, what sort of action is ascribed to you? What sort of wage is owed you for labor? Show the works, then. Ask for the returns. Nobody does business after the market closes. Neither after the game's end does anyone come up to be crowned. Neither after a war does anyone prove his valor. Neither, then, is godliness to be postponed till after life, as is obvious. Again, you promise to write up your benefactions in black and white, So who will announce to you the time of your departure? Who will be your actuary to guarantee the mode of your death? How many have been snatched away in violent accidents, not even able to let go a cry in their pains? How many have been made delirious by fever? Why then do you wait for a time when you may no longer to be in command of your faculties. The night is deep, the sickness is crushing, and there is no one to help. And he who sits by, waiting for an inheritance, is ready to manipulate everything towards his own profit, turning all your intentions to no purpose At that time, turning your gaze here and there and seeing the void that surrounds you, you will perceive your foolishness. Then you will groan for the mindlessness you showed in putting off the commandment. At that hour when your tongue lies slack, And your trembling hand is jerked by spasms, since neither by voice nor in writing will you be able to indicate your intent. And indeed, even if you've written everything clearly, and have expressed, declared, all things by voice, a single letter interpolated into the text suffices to change its meaning one counterfeit seal, two or three false witnesses in the whole inheritance is passed over to others. Ninth, why then do you deceive yourself, misusing wealth now for carnal enjoyment and promising for the future things which will no longer be under your control? As This sermon has shown, it is an evil counsel that says, living, I enjoy my pleasures. Dead, I'll do what's been commanded. Abraham also says to you, you received your good things during your life. The narrow, straightened way does not admit you, since you haven't put off the bulkiness of your wealth. You departed, still carrying it. You didn't toss it aside as you'd been directed. While you lived, you set yourself above the commandment. After death and decomposition, then you value the commandment above your enemies. For in order that so-and-so should receive nothing, it says, Let the Lord receive. And what should we call this? Revenge against your enemies or love of your neighbor? Read what it says in your will. I wanted to continue to live and enjoy the things that were mine. So death deserves the thanks, not you. For if you were immortal, you would have never remembered the commandments. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Dead things are not brought to a sacrificial altar. Bring forth a living sacrifice. Unacceptable is the one who makes an offering from his excess. But in your case, those things you had in excess all your life are what you present to your benefactor. If you dare not welcome honorable men to your home with kitchen leftovers, How dare you offer leftovers to appease God? Consider, then, the end of covetousness, you who are rich, and cease from your passionate affection towards legal tender. However much you adore wealth, to that very extent you should rather leave not one thing behind that belongs to you. You want everything to be your own. You want to bring everything with you. But possibly your own servants will not clothe you for the world to come, but will skimp on your burial, cheerfully bestowing the savings upon your inheritors. Or perhaps they will philosophize against you then. How tasteless and inappropriate, they'll say, to beautify a corpse and to give expensive burial to someone who can no longer perceive. What? Should we not, in fact, dress up present company with expensive swanky apparel, rather than bury a dead person's most valuable garments among with him? What good is a monument over the grave, and a pompous burial, and useless expenses? It is right that these things needful for life be used by the living. Such things, they'll say getting back at you for your meanness, and using your effects to ingratiate themselves with your heirs. Get a head start on them. Prepare your own self for burial. Piety makes a lovely casket. Come away fully dressed. Make God your peculiar beauty. Take it with you. Believe in the good counsel and Christ who loves you, who for us became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich and who gave himself as a ransom for us. Do it because in his wisdom he immediately sees what is hopeful to us. So let us trust in him. Or because he loves us, let us pray to him. Or because he does us good, let us do good in turn. And let us, in any case, do the things he has directed us to do so that we may become inheritors of the everlasting life, which is in the same Christ. To him be glory and power and world without end. Amen.
2: there's a specific line in the sermon a little bit earlier on where he says you know by how much money you have extra in your pocket to spend on yourself that is how much you still lack a love for others and lack of love for god because instead of giving that away and looking to put all of your resources towards god's use and helping the poor you're still holding on that bit for yourself so that's the amount you love god It may not be, you know, that's an extreme opinion. That is very much the antithesis, I think, of pretty much all the financial gurus. I I don't know any pastors that would recommend looking at your wealth that way. But when I read the account of the young rich ruler and I read the Bible and I read James and the way it talks about riches, I do think that we've, in an effort to, not go too too far to the one side we've kind of forgotten this opinion that it for a very long time you know people would give up everything they own to go and serve the church and they would do that and when you were a missionary back in the day you didn't have a lot of wealth to return back to and i think as christians we need to get a little bit more okay with the idea that the stuff i have today i'm willing to give it up for god if that's something he calls or wants me to do and if i read his word it might really well be what he's saying to do
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Chris Ridgway. He's the host of the Device and Virtue Podcast. Check out our website at RevivedThoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for today's episode and all of our episodes.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. We hope you enjoy it. If you don't mind sharing this episode with others, telling them about what you got to listen to, and hopefully if you learned something from this, sharing that with others, that would be fantastic. And we have a show called Revived Devos. We hope that you will uh, subscribe to it and listen to it and get an opportunity to grow closer to God as you hear devotionals from different people every single day. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: On the In Between podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world,
0: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse,
1: how to not hate your in-laws,
0: ways to save money for your next vacation,
1: and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships.
0: Join us, Daniel
1: and Christina M.
0: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family.
1: For more information, go to InBetween.org. That's imbetween.org.